You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Among progressive people of faith, pluralism is a common shared conviction. From my interview with Rob Sellers, you have heard an understanding of pluralism from a Christian perspective. There are different concepts of pluralism. The Pluralism Project at Harvard University with Diana L. Eck as director is one approach or option. Another is that of David Tracy. My guest today is the Rabbi Dr. Joseph A. Edelheit. Dr. Edelheit has been involved in interfaith conversation and peace building for a long time. A graduate of the University of Chicago Divinity School and its 2001 Alumnus of the Year, Joseph studied with David Tracy and Paul Ricoeur. It was from David Tracy that Dr. Edelheit learned and developed his understanding of pluralism, and from Paul Ricoeur that he gained insight into Jewish and Christian conversation around a shared text. Dr. Edelheit has been a participant and contributor to the Paul Ricoeur Society and has co-edited and contributed to the book Reading Scripture with Paul Ricoeur. His most recent work is titled, What Am I Missing? Questions on Being Human, which we will discuss in this interview. There was a wonderful interview with Joseph on YouTube conducted by Rob Wilson Black as part of Joseph's receiving the University of Chicago Divinity School's Alumnus of the Year Award. Some of the questions I will raise in this interview give Joseph a chance to develop more fully the answers he gave during that interview. So Joseph is here to share with us his work, his experience with interfaith conversation, and his understanding of pluralism. Welcome, Joseph. Thank you for being with me. I'm very grateful for this. David, it is a thrill. Well, let's begin uh, by letting you tell your own spiritual journey, uh, especially as that led you into the rabbinate and then also into your interest in interfaith conversation. Well, I'm in the first cohort of the uh, so-called baby boom generation, born in 1946, uh, grew up in San Francisco, California. Uh, My parents belonged to a conservative synagogue. My mother was uh, raised in a very, very liberal non-observant reform home. And uh, I remember the value of what it meant to learn the past through my faith. And that became an important anchor, both in terms of going to religious school and Hebrew school and enjoying being part of a community because uh, Jews are part of a community. We are not, as a matter of individuals, we aren't individually related to God. We are communally, as an aggregate, related to God. So when I was seven years old, uh, I went across the street. There were three boys on the block. One had a ball, one had a bat, one had a glove. And that uh, constructed our baseball game. And I went across the street and I was told uh, the boy had just come home from catechism, holy name church, not too far from our home. And he said, I can no longer play ball with you because you killed Christ. I was born in 46, so that's 1953. I didn't know who Christ was. I certainly hadn't killed him and I didn't understand why we couldn't play ball. That experience uh, was transformative in its demand to understand how a Jewish kid who played ball with a Catholic kid and somehow those differences, which at seven years old, you cannot understand. Uh, I was active in forensics debate in high school and college went to the University of California at Berkeley, 1964 to 1968, what we called the vintage years. I was 17 years old during the free speech movement. Uh, The issues of civil rights, the war in Vietnam, uh, motivated me 
uh, to find a place where I could make a difference in the world. That was my goal, whatever it meant to have a career, a profession. And I was drawn, having worked in synagogues since the time I was 15 years old, I was drawn toward the rabbinate from its teaching perspective and its social communal perspective. I had rabbinic models that were engaged in civil rights, engaged in the anti-war movement, and uh, that drew me to the rabbinate. I was uh, always concerned with the matter of dialogue. Uh, I hadn't yet really integrated Buber, but I understood that in the 60s, it was dialogue that created change. And my uh, work in interfaith dialogue um, is a way of moving that, that dynamic of the 60s into an ongoing focus of understanding what happened when I was seven years old. I did my doctorate at the University of Chicago Divinity School, uh, and it was in Christian theology. Now, why would a rabbi go do that? Because I wanted to make sure there was never again a seven-year-old Jewish boy who was uh, confused, unable to play ball with a seven-year-old Catholic boy. Now, we've had Vatican II, and um, we are now 80 years beyond the Holocaust. Uh, I think we've had a period of new understanding where interfaith relations have created what the two of us are doing this morning. And my fear is that the division with which we live is going to undermine the fact that the two of us are so comfortable talking to each other. Yeah, I can see that uh, because the context is changing. Yes. Uh, and yeah. and uh, threatening uh, in a lot of ways. Well, now, when you were at, when you were at Chicago, uh, you studied with both David Tracy and Paul Ricoeur. Yes, I went to the Div School at the invitation of David Tracy. I was teaching at Valparaiso University, a Lutheran university, uh, near the small congregation in Michigan City, Indiana. First non-Christian ever to be in their theology department. First non-Christian ever asked to speak at the Chapel of Resurrection at a Lutheran university, and began to participate in some academic conversations and met Tracy. And Tracy heard some of my work and said, come, let's study together and let's work together. Uh, it was transformative to be in the Divinity School, uh, not just with Tracy and Ricoeur and Wendy Doniger and Jim Gustafson, the ethicist, and Stephen Tolman and Langdon Gilkey, on and on and on. Uh, what I learned at the Divinity School from Tracy was the essential goal of radical pluralism. For Tracy, theologically, you could not have a truth and the pluralism of reality. You had to somehow find a way to have the pluralisms, the truths, so I learned and took the risks of being able to say to David, Jesus is the Christ, not Jesus is the Christ for Christians. Because when you add for Christians, you've relativized that truth. That truth is not absolute. And why should I define our relationship by diminishing your truth. Too often I've heard Jews when asked, well, tell us what you believe. And they answer that by beginning with, Jews don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. <laughs> Why would you define yourself by rejecting the truth of Christianity? So the pluralism I learned theologically from Tracy 
was to take the risk that the one universal God of Scripture is understood, experienced in multiple truths. Now, that requires in dialogue for me to eventually say, David, the 613 commandments of the Hebrew Bible, the rabbinic interpretation of those 613 commandments that become the Talmud and rabbinic interpretation nigh unto today, that remains. That is not obviated by the gift of Jesus and the gift of the gospel. So in my affirming the pluralism of your truth, I expect in return the ongoing dynamic of my truth that might eventuate in, I don't need Jesus. Well, now how does, go ahead. In my willingness and ability to affirm the pluralism of truth, the truths, then my expectation is that my affirmation that I'm in covenant with the living God, I don't need to be saved by Jesus. So pluralism is filled with complex ambiguity and is very messy. It's not an easy construct for most people. Well, now how is it different from your, your approach, Tracy's approach to pluralism, different from uh, the, the Harvard Pluralism Project with uh, Diana Eck? I think X Project is extraordinary. I've used her books when I teach, um, but she comes from a sociology, an anthropological point of view. She doesn't run the same theological risks that Tracy sets up. And so she can have a comparative pluralism that does not run the demand of my looking at you and being present to you and at some point saying, how am I going to engage David and his relationship with God through the Jesus of Nazareth who rose on the third day as the Christos, the Messiah? The Eck Project allows for us to learn about the comparative differences in our community and share comparative differences, but it doesn't have a theological demand as Tracy's prog project has. Well, so how did you uh, uh, introduce this to your own congregation? Uh, <laughs> when, when they would hear you say, <laughs> Jesus is the Christ. Uh, yeah, I... I had two very, very important friends in the communities I served in Chicago and then in Minneapolis. And I was able to help my congregation move toward that horizon. I don't think I ever got the congregation to embrace the certainty that I've just expressed to you. Uh, a wonderful, extraordinary friend of mine, Rabbi Michael Signer of Blessed Memory, who uh, taught at my seminary and then later at Notre Dame, used to warn me all the time, Edelheit, Tracy works best in a classroom, not <laughs> inside a sanctuary. Um, I was in a conversation that was reported in the Star Tribune, the Minneapolis newspaper, with my good friend, uh, the rector of the Basilica of St. Mary in Minneapolis. And we had taken a trip with our congregation and we had gone to Israel together, 84 of us. And we were talking about it. And I said something about Tracy and Jesus is the Christ. And that was printed on the front page of the second section of the Minneapolis Star Trib. And there were rabbis who to this day thought I should have been fired, other rabbis in the community. Um, and members of my congregation who said, you've gone too far. Um, look, I, I don't think that Tracy's great insight, like Ricoeur's great insight, is going to be something that's integrated at every accessible level. 
I don't. But when I invited Paul Ricoeur to speak in my synagogue at a Holocaust interfaith memorial, he knew he was safe, and I knew that the previous year I'd had Cardinal Joseph Bernardine of blessed memory. So I don't want to invite Christians unless they know they're safe as being fully and completely equal. But the pluralism has limits. I never asked my friend, Father Michael O'Connell, to experiment with the Eucharist. Wasn't for me, nor did he ever expect to bless the Torah or actually hold a Sefer Torah. It wasn't for him. So pluralism theologically is different than anthropologically and sociologically. We can and should pray, but in our different, from our different points of experience. I go to Catholic church to teach and preach, not to pray. And someday I hope the two of us can pray together, but when I pray and when you pray, I believe we're praying to the same God with distinct discourse. The interview that I just published uh, last Monday uh, is with a musician, David Lamott. And um, he has a, uh, uh, he helped form a music group called Abraham Jam. And it's a, a Jewish musician, a Muslim musician, and David, the, the Christian musician, uh, singing together. And one of the songs that they sing is what I think you're uh, talking about. It's called Braided Prayer. That's it. Yeah, uh, I'm going to read this interview and listen to this music. Yep. Uh, and it's powerful and amazing. And it happened in, in some way by accident because uh, uh, the Jewish musician um, began singing the Shema. And, um, and the Muslim musician, they were just, they were just in, in the studio kind of hanging out and, and you know, uh, not doing anything formally. And, and, and the Jewish musician began singing the Shema. And the Muslim musician uh, joined in by singing whatever the Muslim call to prayer is. Allah Akbar, yeah. And, and somehow, between the giftedness of their musicianship, uh, they worked this amazing harmony that when they finished, all three of them just stood in silence and with cold chills. And, and they said, we need somehow to incorporate David's voice into this. And that led to him singing, singing the Lord's prayer, uh, in Spanish and, and therefore them, them, uh, performing, uh, this, this braided prayer, uh, that's immensely profound, but it sounds exactly what you're talking about. And so did you find yourself, um, safe in being invited into Christian pulpit? Always. Uh, always, uh, because I don't represent a Jew who begins the conversation with, um, let's make sure I shame all the Christians for the scriptural anti-Judaism that has been uh, so tragic in our combined histories. Uh, I begin the relationship with, we share God. We share scripture. It's not the same scripture, but we share the understanding that we are communities anchored in text. And there are places that don't want me, uh, tragically, um, but I think they don't want me because politically, uh, I'm not a, uh, a voice they feel comfortable with. Um, but yes, I've always felt safe and I'm told by many Christians, uh, clergy of many different denominations, that they've always felt safe in my synagogue. And they felt safe in conversation with me now that I'm retired from the pulpit. Because you, you, you talked about uh, getting to um, uh, speak at Valparaiso right. uh, in their chapel. Uh, how did that come about? 
I was on their theology department as an adjunct at part-time. And uh, I, the theology department asked me to speak uh, when it was Holocaust Memorial Day. The uh, chaplain of the chapel, who was a right-wing Missouri Synod, was uh, made it very clear I could not preach. I could only speak. And uh, the last year I was there, they made it very clear they were inviting me to preach. And he stormed out, mm. made quite a scene. And there was a, a big public debate later at a theology department where I simply said to him, your standard would not allow Jesus, the Jew, to preach in your chapel. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, there are limits and there are uh, shadings of where pluralism uh, sounds better as an idea than an actual practice. I understand that. I, I appreciate that. Um, but I will continue to try and find, create some place in between. We're stuck with the certainty of extremes today, David. And my purpose in accepting your invitation is to find another platform to engage in somewhere in between. And somewhere in between is not the center. It's literally in the mystery and ambiguity of somewhere in between. Well, now you, um, uh, you said that, that part of why you, your, your success in interfaith dialogue is that you don't try to shame Christians. Um, and, 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 and thank you for that. Uh, but at the same time, you, you stress the importance of, and you say that you, of structuring Jewish Christian interfaith dialogue, um, with, uh, the inclusion of the experience of anti-Semitism. That's right. And, and so, um, there's a kind of a cluster of questions that I thought about related to that. And, and let's begin with, uh, telling us about your experience of coming to teach at St. Cloud state. When I retired from temple Israel in Minneapolis, because of my health, uh, at that same time, there was a federal class action lawsuit, uh, being, uh, worked on, uh, Zamora et al, uh, where a significant number of faculty had sued uh, the university, the state university system, and the state of Minnesota on the basis of discrimination because they were Jews. Ultimately, the case was settled out of court, and I became invited uh, by representatives uh, to help them structure part of the settlement, which was the creation of a Jewish studies program at a large state university, 58 miles northwest of Minneapolis. And there are no Jews. <laughs> You're creating a Jewish studies program on a campus where there were never more than 10 Jews. So uh, the first job I took was interim introductory. Let's find out if this is going to work. Ultimately, I was hired full time and uh, worked through the process of tenure and uh, retired in, in 2016 as professor of religious and Jewish studies. Um, look, you took six months to convince a state university faculty, state university faculty, that when it offers a course in Bible, the course cannot be offered as the Old Testament. It must be offered as the Hebrew Bible backslash Old Testament. That was shocking to me. Uh, I, I'm, I'm dealing with uh, 21st century academics who don't understand that the idiom Old Testament is by its very nature an exclusion and rejection of the Hebrew Bible. Right. The term old, as I tell my students, unless uh, the word old is referring to a classic mint uh, British racing green uh, 
1968 Mustang convertible. That's old is great. Anything <laughs> else old um, is going to, by nature, not be as good as new. So when I sit with a Christian, I begin with, please give me my Bible back. OT for me means only Testament. Mm-hmm. Hebrew Bible is mine. Now I'll share it. I understand its value and necessity for Christians. Please do not rename it, reframe it, and then add it to the New Testament. Okay. Um, I would eventually create courses that taught about Jews and Jewish life, and then finally created a course called Anti-Semitism in America, which uh, gave students an opportunity to take a course that at one time would permit them to meet the human relations requirement for graduation. Anti-Semitism is not the same as anti-Judaism. Anti-Judaism is a textual polemic inside Christian scripture, which uses scripture as a way of saying that uh, the Jewish world from which Christianity grew up is rejecting the love that Jesus produces. It's not just that I need Jesus, it's that the Jews of Jesus's time rejected him as the Messiah, which then is translated textually as they were responsible for his death, the claim of deicide, you killed Christ, as found in Matthew 25. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But there are lots of idioms. The word Pharisee, if you look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, first definition, hypocrite. Yeah. Um, So what I've tried to do is help Christians with important scholars of the 70s and 80s look at their texts and understand, hey, this text has a burden of history. Here is how the anti-Jewish polemic became the substance of later anti-Semitism. Luther's last four sermons were on the Jews, their lies. It was simply reprinted the day after Kristallnacht, the 1938 November pogrom. The Mm. SS simply took Luther's last four sermons and reprinted them. Mm. So I don't think Christianity or Christians are anti-Semitic. I think they have a tradition, textually and theologically, that often in its need to repudiate the Judaism that rejected Jesus, continues to repudiate Jews, which then becomes anti-Semitism. Okay. And so in your courses that you offered on this, uh, what most fully did you want your students to learn? Critical reading. Every single course I taught was a course on critical reading. I don't think our students understand what it means to read a text, to understand that they have to put the text in a context. I have a whole lecture based on how you have to study the copyright page. (laughs) (laughs) You have to take seriously if the text you're reading is a translation. What does it mean? What's the language from which it was translated? What was happening in the world in which the work was created? Then you have to put yourself into your context. What's your bias as you read this text? If you're a Christian and you're reading a Jewish text, what does your Christian identity say about how you're reading this text? So every single course I taught was a way of modeling critical reading. 
critical reading was a way of building toward a discourse, a means of thinking and working toward engagement. I believe that the product I was attempting as a state university professor, the product was engaged citizens. Because if you're indifferent, you're complicit. I explain that a little more. If you're not engaged, then the evil in the society you're silent about. Adolf Hitler was elected by those who didn't vote in the last election of the Weimar Republic. Uh, the destruction of 6 million Jews and another 5.2 million other marginalized communities was made possible by the bystanders. We understand the perpetrators. We understand the victims. We rarely talk about the bystanders. And every one of my students has been a bystander. At some point in their life, they stood in a hall in junior high or high school and they watched someone else be the victim and they walked by. They listened to a joke being told and they said nothing. Digital media. So critical reading, I hope, leads to engagement. And engagement is the only way I can help people create a personal communal antidote to being bystanders, complicit through their silence. Well, one of the things I wanted you to develop a little more from your wonderful conversation that you had uh, with Rob Wilson Black on your uh, uh, Chicago Divinity School Alumnus of the Year Award. Uh, in that, that YouTube uh, interview, uh, you made the comment, um, how do we cope with places where there are no Jews, but people are behaving in a way that needs to be corrected? And then related to that, uh, who defends Jews uh, when there are no Jews there? And I wanted, uh, when I heard you say that, uh, you didn't get the chance to develop that as fully as I would like to have uh, uh, had you do. And so I want to give you that opportunity uh, to do that here. Uh, talk about that more fully with us. Look, uh, I was uh, aware there were no Jews on campus. That was a fact. But I didn't think through what it meant. Giving a lecture one day, about stereotypes in television. And uh, I asked someone, uh, do you like the Seinfeld show? Oh yeah, I love Seinfeld. Okay, do you know that Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David are Jews? Two hands out of 80 people. Well, I know I finished lecturing, but I, I was no longer thinking while I was lecturing. I kept thinking about what are they laughing at? They love Jerry Seinfeld, but they didn't know the creators of Jerry Seinfeld are Jews. I took the fact that there are no Jews and began thinking about it as what we would call a hermeneutic, an interpretive principle. What do you do with the absence of Jews? And the absence of Jews in a small city of St. Cloud, Minnesota, uh, of course there are no Jews. There are no Jews in Idaho, Wyoming, the Dakotas. There are lots of places in the world where there are very few Jews. So when something comes up in the absence of Jews, now those who don't know Jews, who don't know about Jewish life, who don't know about Judaism, they can't really answer a challenge because there are no Jews. In 1939, there were 16.6 .6 million Jews in a global population of over 2 billion. In 2022, there are 16.8 million Jews in a global population of 7.4 billion. 
There's an absence of Jews, but, but Jews are everywhere. We're, we're watching the world deal with a war which was provoked by Putin wanting to denazify Ukraine, which currently has a president who is Jewish, whose family perished in the Holocaust. Mm. So in the absence of Jews, how do you explain that term? What does it mean that he's Jewish? When Israel is put in the newspaper all the time, when issues of so-called conspiracy theory about Jews, how do people understand? what they're hearing about Jews and Jewish life when there are no Jews to offer them critical reflection. In the lifetime, in the adult lifetime of my students, the last survivor of the Shoah, the Holocaust, will die. When the last survivor who could say I dies, then the story is the obligation of my students. My goal was to give them access to understanding Jews, Judaism, and Jewish life. Not because they're Jews, but because they have to, in the absence of Jews, take up this story. Now, in what ways uh, is that comparable to Black Lives Matter? Oh, wonderful question. Painful and difficult. Uh, <clears throat> look, Black Lives Matter is, is a needed and prophetic part of our zeitgeist, our, the spirit of our time. It is not the same as the civil rights movement with which I grew up. It is not even the same as the Black Panthers, with whom I once worked when I was an undergraduate at Berkeley, not the same as Malcolm X. Black Lives Matter is uh, anchored in an ideology of anti-racism. Anti-racism is a particular construct of the pain, excuse me, and rage of a community that is exhausted uh, for how long it has to wait for the equity of the incrementalism they now judge. In those conversations, I'm a white, privileged, 75-year-old who is not a part of the dialogue. Dialogue for me was an essential element of my social being, my identity, the call to serve as a rabbi. I engage people and ask them to be aware of the absence of Jews as Christians, as engaged 21st citizens, but not from the construct of an ideology in which they owe it to me. I, I, I remember the cost of being told that I killed Christ. Not going to begin a social relationship with the statement, the past is a grievance for which the only way out is for you to begin with, it's your fault. I uh, understand and appreciate the necessity of Black Lives Matter today. But by their standards, I'm not in the conversation. I'm a 75-year-old, white, privileged Jewish guy. I have chosen a different methodology. 
Um, we might have the same goal. Um, the anti-racist uh, activists on the campus of St. Cloud State have now removed my course, Anti-Semitism in America, as a course that meets the standards for graduation. All students must only take a class in racism. I, I don't, I don't feel comfortable, David, in attempting to argue toward a, a competitive victimology. But I understand, and my children school me all the time, that this is not where we are today. So I celebrate and, and will sit quietly in the presence of those who must do the work today. On the other hand, um, helping people understand the absence of Jews is, is not anchored in an ideology in which they are responsible for the absence of Jews. Well, I'm, I'm trying to understand again more fully your, your uh, statement that anti-Judaism is not the same as anti-Semitism. And so what is the, what is the relationship between anti-Semitism and anti-racism? Well, that's good. Anti-Judaism is a textual early theological uh, polemic that afforded historical emergence of the Christian community as a way of answering the challenge that the Messiah had come, but there was no messianic age. That would theologically become the prolepsis, the always already, not yet. Jews are responsible for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And insofar as you're now going to take a Jewish message and sell it uh, pragmatically, as Paul reframed it, give it to the Gentiles, you have to answer the question, well, why didn't Jews want it? Anti-Semitism is a social development of centuries of religious Jewish hatred. Wilhelm Marr um, actually frames the idiom anti-Semitism in the 19th century. Not all anti-Semites draw upon the textual, scriptural, anti-Jewish polemics, but the conspiracy that Jews are powerful, the so-called cabal, the protocols of the elders of Zion, um, that was promulgated by Henry Ford in the Dearborn Independent when he bought a newspaper in order to promulgate that conspiracy. Uh, Christian nationalism today in America, Protestant Christian nationalism, is a new way of understanding how Christian certainty, Protestant Christian certainty, can become socially depraved hatred. Now, there's a link. You can follow the link, but it isn't necessary that the Christian nationalists of Charlottesville 2017 or the Christian nationalists that uh, breached the Capitol January 6th, they're certain that this country is supposed to be a white Christian country. Look, the first Jews that came to America in 1654, 23 refugees from the Portuguese Inquisition in Recife, Brazil. They landed. Peter Stuyvesant, the governor of New Amsterdam, wouldn't let them in. But because among the 23 refugees were had there were family members in Amsterdam that owned stock in the Dutch West Indies Company. The governor was required to let them in. He did, but he took all their belongings, stripped them of everything. Religious discomfort 
textual hatred becomes social disengagement, ghettoization. There are not enough Jews today mathematically to fit the margin of error. And yet we remain prominent. How do you explain that? A Jew appreciates and understands the gifts of the Christian majority, but doesn't want it. No, thank you. I don't need it. Christians on the campus, whenever they constantly offer me a copy of the New Testament, we want to save you, Rabbi. Please read this. I've read it. I teach it. I don't need it. And it's that I don't need it that they don't understand, David. What do you mean you don't need it? I have eternal life. Good. I'm happy for you and all those you love. I don't need it. At some point, I don't need it becomes a trigger for there's something wrong with you. Okay. And that's the bridge that leads toward anti-Semitism. But how does that then extend into the anti-racism? It, 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 I can only frame this from my experience at St. Cloud State, where the need for the anti-racists to have a monopoly on social reconstruction. If race is socially constructed, then they want to make sure every student has an understanding of that social construction and changes what whites think about blacks. In that construct, I'm a Jew, I'm white. There are Jews of color, many, but I'm white and I'm from a privileged background. And now the construct of anti-Semitism gives way to the majority moment that anti-racism, especially in Minneapolis, after the death murder of George Floyd, why are you going to argue that some students should opt for a class in anti-Semitism? Your need to teach that class continually is a statement of your privilege, I've been told. Hmm. Well, now in the broader context then, uh, your most recent book, uh, What Am I Missing? Questions on being human uh, seems to bear on all this conversation that we... It does. And uh, I, I'm pleased. I refer to it as my little book. I conscientiously did not want it to be the same as my record book. It's not academic. It's accessible. It is based on uh, something I found and have been teaching for many years that six biblical characters... Uh, Abraham, Moses, and David, Rachel, Miriam, and Esther, six biblical characters, each somehow representing one of the key defining elements of Jewish life, God, Torah, Israel. They're all missing something. None of them have it all. Uh, Abraham and Rachel give us monotheism. They are the Hebrews in the book of Genesis that create the fabric out of which later biblical Israelite faith will come. And yet, Abraham has the promise of Israel, certainly has God, the first to know a single God, but does not yet have Torah, has no revelation, has no scripture. Moses, who knows God more intimately and is the source of the revealed law on Mount Sinai, is denied entrance into the land and has a fragile and fractious relationship with the people of Israel. King David, Esther, they have the, as it were, a Torah taught through ethics, the prophets. They have more Israel than at any point, David, the largest kingdom imaginable. But when David asked to build the holy temple for God, He's told, no, you have blood on your hands. And Esther is one of two books in the Hebrew Bible that never mentions God at all. 
So Abraham does not have Torah, God and Israel. Moses has Torah and God, but has no Israel. David and Esther have Israel and Torah, but they don't have God. So what is it meant? This is not just a coincidence. These are the pillars of biblical experience. And I've come to the conclusion, none of us have it all. We're not supposed to have it all. Being human is about learning how to live with what we're missing. The experience of being both a pulpit clergy person and teaching academically has led me to understand that far too much of the late 20th and now 21st century is about the amount of time and effort we attempt to have it all. As consumers, as uh, spouses, parents, children, what is it? We tell our children, you can be whatever you want to be. Well, no, actually, that's not true. <laughs> Please don't try and be. In my case, I have a terrible voice. When I was in rabbinical school, I was the only student for whom music was made an elective and I was not allowed to take it. <laughs> so, no, you can't be an opera singer. You can't be. No, learn to live with limits. Questions allow us to reflect on what we have, what we don't have, and we will never have. Well, you say that the, um, the kind of part um, of rabbinic insight uh, is about questions. It is. Uh, we believe that Elijah, the prophet, uh, will uh, come be the harbinger of the Messiah. Uh, the two of us, you're waiting for the second coming. I'm waiting for the messianic age. They're probably idealized in the same moment. And Elijah will come to let us know when that moment is. And the first thing Elijah does is answer the unanswered questions. So the ultimate reality of what we're striving to attain begins with answering unanswered questions. Questions keep conversations open. Answers end conversations. I've said libraries are filled with shelves of answers. I've told all my students, if you want to take any final I've given you, I'll let you ask a new question. But then I'm going to grade your essay on the question you've asked, in which I get to grade the question too. That's great. Questions help us open uh, not just topics, but ideas. Questions help us formulate whole new arenas. Uh, questions keep us beyond the laziness of certainty. Well, Dr. Idea, you mentioned earlier that, that it relates to engagement. That's right. That's right. Th think of, um, I've been working on this for a while and I'll offer it to you and those who listen to it. Uh, discourse, discourse. The ancient rabbis say that when the Holy One, blessed be God, infused the first human being with a soul in the book of Genesis, that meant that God gave that first human being the apparatus, the ability to communicate, to talk. What distinguishes being human from just being an animal? So I've been working on this for a while. Being human means the acquisition, the burden of discourse. There used to be an assumption, an acceptance that discussion led us to discovery. Debate 
That taught us disagreement. Dialogue. That teaches us and leads us toward discernment. That was the classic Western form of discourse. Discussion, discovery, debate, dealing with disagreement, the argument, and then dialogue and discernment. Okay, you know what we're dealing with today? Disputation, which was a part of the medieval church's way to discredit and defile another group, part of uh, the Christian Jewish problematic of the Inquisition, diatribe, a lot of diatribes today, which is intentionally the way we defile and disgrace someone. That, that's what social media has become. And finally, disinformation, the means for intentional denial. The Holy One, blessed be God, offers us the, the crowning moment of being human with discourse. And we have left discussion, debate, dialogue, and moved to disputation, diatribe, and disinformation. I, I leave that because I think your podcast is an attempt much like mine to help us find somewhere in between. We can't change the reality in which we're living, but we can begin to say to each other, no, no, I, I'm, I'm past the diatribes. I, I wanna spend no more time dirtying my soul in order to defile someone else. Uh, Questions are all linked to discussion, debate, dialogue. Questions are part of that. Whereas disputation, diatribe, and disinformation, there are no questions involved with that. That's all intentional and certain. Well, one of the, the um, statements you made, again, in, the, in your conversation with uh, Rob Wilson Black, uh, that I just, I just love. Um, cause you talk about, um, in, particularly in, in Jewish Christian dialogue, uh, the shared text and, and you say, how do you open a text, um, and keep the text opening? And then you answer that with the, with this, and this is, this is what I really love, uh, by, by saying that we need a way of asking questions that produce more questions. Mm-hmm. Elaborate and, on that. And, and I think your podcast is, is something new that uh, we might not have known 10 years ago, how, how someone is going to hear this, someone I don't know, someone who doesn't know me, and they're going to read uh, my book, they're going to hear our conversation. And they will begin to ask questions about themselves. What do I know about Jewish life? Yeah, I, we have to be willing to take risks, uh, learning from Ricoeur, learning from Tracy. Uh, they taught classes together. The risks they would take with each other the risks you took in finding out who I was. You didn't have any idea who I was. And we took the risks mutually. It's not easy today to take those risks because people are canceling each other. They're defiling each other. They're denying each other. Who wants to take a risk in that kind of environment? Right. Somewhere in between the engagement, the ability to be present to someone who is different and being present to someone who's different leads us toward that 
extraordinary sense that Ricoeur has about being having hope. Well, good. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that was I was going to ask that as a last question. I know. I know. Tell us about uh, that. I started. I was the founding rabbi of a little teeny congregation in Brazil where I live now. We found the name Beit Tikva, House of Hope. The word esperar in Portuguese means to wait, to expect, and to hope. One word, and, and you have to understand the context of what you're reading in order to know what the word means. Getting up every day today, it, it, it's difficult to find the, the ledge of hope. Not just the war and inflation and political differences and going into more than three years of this pandemic. What, where is their hope? Not just transcendent hope, but hope that I'm going to use today that gets me through every challenge that I meet. Part of that hope that we get from record is the ability to understand what it means to engage in the text and in the challenge of communication. I, I don't know you. I have to take a risk to be present to you in making sure the words I use you understand. And if you don't understand, I have to stop and say, David, did you understand what I just said? That is a hope that we're losing. I want to, look, being the first rabbi to be acknowledged by the Divinity School with this extraordinary award means a great deal to me. It means that someone who doesn't know that a Jew would take the time to get a doctorate in Christian theology. Why? Because I want Christians to know I take them seriously in the hope that they will take me seriously. That's the hope. And that is my hope as well. Because the wisdom that you have given us, the... Um, the vision and the tools to build a way forward uh, have been immensely important to me personally in talking with you uh, and what I hope my audience uh, will gain as well. David, thank you very, very much. And uh, I hope, I hope personally, that this is uh, the first conversation, not just a podcast that we got to do together. And I hope so as well. So thank you deeply for being with me. Thank you for sharing uh, what you have shared. Uh, this is going to be an important step forward. God bless. Blessings to you as well. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth.